Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for the program. Do you feel at times that we're living in a world gone mad? In a society experiencing rapid fire changes to standards, acceptable codes of conduct and moral fence lines, how do we know where the line is between right and wrong? Does the Bible have anything to say? Dr. Corbett is engaging in a four-part series titled Not Quite Right, focusing on four key social quandaries. Tonight is the first topic of gender, and Dr. C spells out what real men don't. And we're dealing with the role of men in our society. And this is real men don't. And hopefully it'll become really obvious what real men don't do. We're going to identify four areas. And so... As we look at this, if you've got your Bible, you might want to go to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, please. And this is what it says. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. So notice where God created Adam. He didn't create him in Eden. He created him out of Eden and it says in the east and there he put man whom he had formed so what does Eden look like well God's got got it marked out this is going to be a garden now who's going to be planting and tending and looking after this garden well it sounds like Adam so just hold that thought for a moment we go down to verse 15 and it says this because we we see that God it says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to what? To work it and keep it, which means maintain it, to work and maintain. Now this, I, I, I want you to see why this is foundational to what we're looking at when we talk about real men and what a real man is. We go down to verse 18. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit or appropriate or complementary to for him. We go down to verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And here's the question. He created Eve somewhere else. Now, why did he do that? I mean, wouldn't you be, if you're Adam, wouldn't you be curious? Show me, how, how does this creation thing work? <laughs> how does the, why, why did God take his, and take it away, create woman and then bring the woman to the man? Why did he do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you for asking. Because what we're seeing here is the very first wedding. And you may not understand the symbolism involved in a wedding, but there's bucket loads. This is God bringing the woman to man because this was the father of the bride walking his daughter up the aisle in the Garden of Eden to man, transferring authority that he had over her to the man. 
An authority, as we'll see in a moment, not to oppress, but an authority to protect. And as he does that, he also officiates at the wedding. He witnesses the wedding. And he pronounces them man and wife, as we see in the end of Genesis chapter 2. She's not just called the woman now, she's called his wife, which means there was a marriage. So why did God do it? Well, verse 23, this is what Adam says. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh, a card, one flesh. One, not numerically, not digitally, but one in union. And then we see in Genesis 1 an overview. Then in Genesis 2, we get the detail. The detail is that God created the whole earth. He created plants and he created animals and then ultimately created man. And he brought him into what was essentially a bare patch of dirt. So here we have Adam and we see from the outset that God had put him in the garden to do two things. Someone, this is, a, this is now where we pause and we do a little bit of revision. Someone tell me, what were the two reasons that we read in Scripture that God had put man in the garden for? Number one, to work it. Number two, to keep it, which is work and maintenance. All right. So we see from the very beginning that God created men to work. So if you're a loafer, get off the couch. No, 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 no. That's where you stand up and clap or do something passionate. It's like, <laughs> men are supposed to be productive. Men are supposed to be creative. And you can't be creative playing a Sony PlayStation for four hours after work each night. See, I thought, I just in my mind, I had this picture of people standing on their chairs and clapping and yaying and, and just getting really excited about that. But <clears throat> that's, I'm going back to that world after this. Um, so here's, here's what we see. When God created man to work, he created man to provide because the idea was that there was fruit that they could eat. Now, how do we know there was fruit that they could eat? Anyone ever heard of the fall? There was fruit there. There was fruit. And Adam was meant to cultivate fruit to provide for his wife. So this is the first role. Men are meant to provide initially for their wives, and then presumably for their families, for their children. But he brought her to Adam to also guard her. And this is, I'm going to use some P words here, to protect her. There was a transfer of authority. Adam was meant to provide. Adam was meant to protect the woman. And then because God brought Eve to Adam, and, and, and we see the implication of Genesis 3 is that God and Adam had been walking together in the cool of the day. And we don't know, we don't know how long Adam and God had done that for. We just don't know. But it had been some time. So Adam had the privilege of having had a relationship with God before Eve came along. And I think there's something very deliberate about that. Because when God brings Eve to Adam, you could almost well imagine Eve going to Adam, who was that? 
And Adam's role was to tell her who that was. That's Elohim. That's God. He's the creator. He's awesome. He's amazing. And what do we call that? We call that pastoring. Well, why did God create the woman? Well, we read it in the passage. She was meant to help. She was meant to support. She was meant to comfort. And there's a sense in which a man on his own can do so much, but a man with the support of his wife can do so much more. And I think that if more wives learn that they are on this planet to be able to do that for their husbands, if, if you have one, that you'll begin to discover your husband can change in all the kind of ways you were hoping he would change. So why did God create them? So that together, man and woman. Notice that when God created man, he created him in his image. When he created woman, he said, okay, I'm going to take part of that image out of you now, Adam. It's called a rib. I'm going to take it out of you and I'm going to invest it into the woman. And when you come together, one. And that one means that they can biologically come into union. It means they can psychologically come into union. In other words, the man will have certain psychological strengths where the woman doesn't and the other way around. And the man will have emotional strengths where the woman may not be so strong. And the, women, the woman will have emotional strengths where the man doesn't. And together they become one. And that oneness reflects the image of God in man in a clearer and greater way. So we have, we have marriage representing the image of God, the divine aspects of God's character. His love, his compassion, his fairness, his, his ability to, to exercise justice and so on. So men and women each display aspects of the image of God, but together that image becomes more complete, more pronounced. Okay. So this is what I want to look at from that foundation. So there's, my, there's my, my, my biblical foundation for what we want to look at. Why God created men, why God created women, their complementary role with each other. Here's what we're now battling with in society. Here's not quite, we're going to have four not quite rights. Here's number one. There is no difference between men and women. Oh my God. Giddy aunt. Fair dinkum. I, I had one of the young people uh, contacted me and said, I'm dealing with a guy who's saying there's no difference between a man and a woman. In fact, your, uh, another issue, your, your gender is whatever you reckon it should be. It's not defined by your biology. And I said, ask him, ask him this question. How does he know that? And the answer was a YouTube clip. And the YouTube clip was a guy saying, gender is whatever you say you feel. That was it. That was the whole clip. And I'm going, right, now let's see why he says that. And he didn't give a reason. But the reason this guy was giving was because of the authority of that YouTube clip. It, it hurts my head to think that there are young people who go, oh, well, if YouTube says it, then who are we to argue? This is the level of logic where, it, and you're going to hear me say this a bit, 
common sense has gone down the toilet. I don't know. I just don't know how else to say it. Common sense. It is obvious. It is so blatantly obvious that men and women are different. That God has created them different. But this is what we're hearing now. There is no difference between men and women. Here's not quite right number two, based on addressing this foundation of Scripture. Gender is not determined by biology. Three weeks ago, President Obama, by presidential decree, declared unilaterally that America, the United States government, no longer considers gender to be determined by biology. It is now however you identify yourself. Here's number three. (laughs) Marriage is a recent social invention designed to oppress women. Watch your language, please. (laughs) Number four. (laughs) Women are created to be men's slaves. Therefore, a man can mistreat a woman. Now, as crazy as this sounds, unfortunately, there is a certain Christian movement that believes, and and unfortunately, this is, I'm, I'm not making this up, It is okay for a husband to beat his wife because Adam was deceived by Eve and she needs a beating. And you hear that and you think, how? What? Huh? All right. Sorry, I just I, I needed a moment. I am not making this up. This this is actually what one particular extreme gr- Christian group teaches. All right, let's come down the home stretch now. I want to address one, two, three, four, and I want to do it fairly quickly. One of Tasmania's, and it could well be the greatest, but I'm just going to be generous and say one of Tasmania's greatest social justice issues is how men mistreat women, domestic violence. It is epidemic in Tasmania. Epidemic. Whatever you think, the, however bad you think the road toll is, it's nothing. However bad you think the ice epidemic is and how many lives that's taken, it is nothing compared to this issue. This is one, I I don't know if you can see that, but this is just a recent post on ABC News. And this is not often reported. And this is is largely what what it says, that there is currently in Tasmania a week, 50 reported incidents of serious domestic violence that police attend to every week. Now, can I tell you, the story goes on and it it says the women, the people who run the women's shelters were outraged by the report because they said you've distorted what's actually going on. And I thought, oh, maybe it's not that high. And they said, no, it is 10 times this. It's that those who are battered in their homes do not report what's going on. 
And I guess the women's shelters would know because they would see more than the police do. So the ABC report that there's some 3,000 reported incidents over the course of a year. The women's shelters say, oh, pff, give us a break. It's far more than that. And when, when you actually have an entire division of police set up to address domestic violence, you know there's a problem. When we have, and there's an entire page here of legal aid commission help for women who feel that they are the victims of domestic violence. This is a serious problem. This is a huge problem. And I want us, and if I can just jump ahead, I guess, to the call to action, I want us to do something about this. Firstly, I want us to make sure that we get our own house in order. So hear me when I say this. If you are a husband or a boyfriend or a father who is physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually, verbally abusing women that you should be protecting and caring for, firstly, we want to help you. We want to help you. On the other side, if you are the victim of that, we want to help you. We want to help you. Now, I'll tell you, because I think I can, that if you're a woman and you come to me and say, I am being beaten by my husband or abused in some way, this is my response. That's not right. It's not your fault. And it's not right. And we need to get you out of that environment. But pastor... I'm married and I can't leave my husband. You can if it involves your safety. If it involves your welfare, not only can you, I will organise some men from the church, we'll come around with a trailer and we will move you out. I've made that promise. I've been within hours of actually activating that fairly recently and went through the same things that I've seen when we try and deal with this, that those who are often victims of abuse end up feeling like it's their fault. That's why we need to talk to you if you're in one of those two camps. Here's how we need to address these four issues. Therefore, here's number one. We need, we're not, it's not quite right that there's no difference between men and women, and this is what we need to know. Based on what we read in Genesis 2, we can see God has created men and women Equal, but different. If your child comes to you and says, is a cup of sugar equal to a cup of flour? What's your answer? Well, in weight, I guess it might be. But in substance, not a chance. Is a man equal to a woman? Yes, but they are also different. And I just... Don't know why that's a problem for people to understand. Men and women are different. Praise God indeed. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it says this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in understanding, in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
You see, if you're a husband and you're, a, you're, you're disrespecting your wife, you're mocking her, you're insulting her behind her back, you're scoffing, you're talking her down to your kids, the Bible says God is so ticked with that attitude, he's not even going to listen to your prayers. And you may be wondering, oh, why, why my prayers aren't being answered? Take a look at this. How you treat your wife determines whether your prayers get answered, men. Men and women are equal, but we're different. And here, the, here Peter says a wife is a weaker vessel. In what sense is she weaker? Well, mostly physically, mostly physically. I've met some women who, oh my goodness, but mostly. Therefore, here's number two. God has created men and women different. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> but equal. Equal in access to God. Equal in worth. Equal in value. Equal in intellectual prowess. Equal in so many ways. Yet different. Colossians 3.19 Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Here's one, you know, especially if you're from a Middle Eastern extract, it may be difficult for you to understand what I'm saying now, that men and women are different. It may be. But here's one that, that really strikes me because it's, it's God at that moment with Abraham and Abraham is, has gone, look, what Sarah wants to do is just wrong and it's just, we can't do this. And so God then says this to Abraham and, and you, you'll pick up the key part of this. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy, Ishmael, and because of your slave woman, whatever... Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. What? Hey? hey? Hang on a minute. Are you saying, God, are you saying Abraham, a man, men, you know, infallible, unable of error, may not have got it quite right? And that he was better served by admitting that and saying to his wife, sorry, dear, I was... And you were right. <laughs> Do as she tells you. <laughs> oh, I can see the men are just so excited about this. I underline that one. <laughs> Note to self: my wife may have been right. It's pretty okay. Number three. Let's address number three. God has given men and women. The gift of marriage. Uh, you understand what gift means? It's not a right. It's not a promise. It's a gift. Paul said that God didn't give him that gift. The Apostle Paul. Paul says that God gave him another gift in its place. The gift of celibacy. But marriage is a gift and it comes from the very beginning and if we had time and we don't we would actually see that governments got involved in marriage about 200 years ago because men were scoundrels and rogues 
and were abusing women, siring children, bearing no responsibility, and the government said, this is not right. We are now going to register these unions. Up until then, it had only been registered by church. And we are going to make sure that you men, you can't just walk away from your obligations to your wife and children. And if you want to, you've got to go through a long process. And for a long time, divorce was not possible. Up until the 1960s, when no-fault divorce came in and became the death knell, really, of what marriage is all about. Because when I prepare a couple for marriage, I, I will say in the wedding vows, you are going to promise each other to have for, uh, for sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or for... Let's try that again. For better or for worse. Now just for a moment, think what worse is. Don't think too long about it, otherwise you'll leave here depressed. But whatever it looks like, when a couple makes a wedding vow before God, this is what I vow to you, I will do with this person. For better or for worse, I'm committed to this person because together we represent you to the world. That's a gift. That brings security to children. That brings security to a woman. That's not oppressing a woman. That brings freedom. It brings blessing. And for those women who have the gift of marriage, and not every woman has it, not every man has it, what a privilege. Ephesians 5.31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. This is quoting Genesis. The two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is why marriage is marriage. Verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Number four, and then we're done. Men should use their God-ordained strength to protect women. Protect, provide, pastor. Then I thought, it's not just women, is it? It's women and children as well. And this is what Jesus said. And here's the deal. This is where it, where it really lands. He was the ultimate man. He is the ultimate man. And he, take my yoke upon you, but here it is. Men, learn from me, for I am gentle. That, that word, gentleman, what does that mean now? It doesn't mean what it used to mean, because it used to mean a man who was powerful yet gentle. And lowly in heart, humble. Boy, wouldn't that be a turn up if we had more men who were teachable, correctable, humble? <gasps> hmm. And you will find rest for your souls. Real men don't abuse women or children. Real men are like Jesus. I want to start a revolution. I want men to go, that's the kind of man I want to be. Let's cry out to God, Father, I pray for every man standing right now that we will be men who 
Stand up for women. Stand up for children. We will not misuse our strength. We will not misuse our power. We will not misuse our authority in our place. And we will do what we can to protect women, to protect children. In Jesus' name. Father, I pray for us right now, for those whom you have called to be men, that, Father, they will be men. They will stand up and be a man. And, Father, for those women who are here today, whose hearts are just yearning to be used by you for your glory, I pray, Father, that you would place within every one of these women a fresh anointing to help others, to care for others, to be able to give advice, to be able to give wisdom, to be able to lead, to be able to make decisions, to be able to be an influence in their world, that, Father, they could do so without fear of harm. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Having looked at what God ordained real men to do, provide, protect and pastor, you can be sure that real men don't abuse women. More in the Not Quite Right series next week on politics. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Not Quite Right, Real Men Don't, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media. PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For regular updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.